I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Hello. Welcome to episode 68 of the Weave Podcast. This week on the podcast, I'm speaking with Jane Hansen, a small-scale, sustainable wool fiber farmer living in northern Wisconsin. Jane, just as many of the other farmers that have graced this podcast, is a Fiber Shed affiliate. She grows vegetables, greens, herbs, flowers, and fruits, all as a part of a seven-year crop rotation. She also uses a management-intensive grazing method for her flocks. She cultivates yarns as well as soaps and other handmade products that she fuses with wool fibers. Hello, Jane. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, LaShawn. Can you start out by introducing yourself and telling us about your background and how you found your way into the world of farming and handcrafted goods? Sure. Yep. My name is Jane Hansen, and my farm name is Autumn Large Farm, LLC. And I'm actually a suburban kid. I grew up in a suburb of Milwaukee, uh, New Berlin. And um, I uh, moved into um, an interest in architecture, actually. So I went to school in Milwaukee for architecture and worked in Florida and Chicago as an architect and as a construction manager. And so this is a bit of a departure, but I, I joke that um, even architecture, which is buildings and bricks and mortar, wasn't quite real enough. I needed to get into farming to really f- find my place to be. Um, but when when I was in Chicago, um, my husband um, said that he would live in Chicago for a set period of time, but then he wanted to move to northern Wisconsin, and I was fine with doing that. So in the year 2000, we moved up to northern Wisconsin and purchased a 40-acre parcel of land, and um, I started thinking about what things I could do with that, and having been taught to knit by my grandma and having really enjoyed knitting throughout my childhood and I, I knit as a little kid and then got busy with high school and um, went back to knitting again when I had a Norwegian roommate in college. And and she had uh, an ethic of only natural fibers, which she passed on to me. And so I continued to knit as I worked as an architect. And when I moved up here, I had this land, and so therefore I had a, a dream of producing my own fiber on this land. And uh, so I, I started out um, with just a, a market garden and, um, and did that for a while, added chickens after a little while to continue to make more use of the land. And then finally in 2009, I got my first flock of sheep and um, started, started raising sheep on the land. And for the sheep, it was initially I wanted to practice not with ones that were going to have babies and everything. So I got what are, what are called feeder lambs. So they were born on someone else's farm. And while they were still relatively young, but were weaned from their mothers, they came here and they grazed on my land and I cared for them. I, I bought them and brought them here. 
And then in the fall, um, I lined up customers for meat and harvested them for meat. But prior to um, them them going to the processor, I sheared them so that I did have the fiber on hand to start to uh, play with um, with the fiber as well. And then in 2012, I got my breeding stock and started raising lambs here on the farm. Wow, that's super interesting. Um, so you mentioned that you have a background in architecture. How did that kind of inform your farming practice? Uh, well, I think I've used this the skills, the design skills for, for interesting things like designing a chicken coop and, and designing an addition for our house. We purchased a small house, um, too small for us to live in, but uh, were then able to make it just the right size rather than many of the farmhouses that we looked at around the area were very large and we were going to have excess amount of space. This way we have just exactly the amount of space that we need. But then I think also the planning skills that I got as as an architect, that I developed as an architect, um, have helped me with the uh, managed grazing and you know all the planning things that are necessary in farming. Before I became a farmer myself, I didn't realize how smart farmers have to be, how much goes into planning to make sure that things happen at the right time and, and uh, in the right order and, you know, taking care of things that come up in a crisis setting, too, like, like the, what the weather throws at you. Yeah, that's I, I, I totally understand that. I mean, I am you know, farming very small. This is my first season. So I've definitely had to use my, my smarts and my background to, um, really think things through, you know, there's a lot that goes into creating and, and, um, putting a farm together. You mentioned that you started raising your sheep in 2009. Was that your first sort of introduction into fiber, into fiber farming? For the most part, although since I knew I was really interested in sheep, prior to that I would I would go over and help at a neighbor's farm a little bit, you know, trying to develop some skills and and you have to sort of develop an eye for things as well, you know, to recognize if there are issues going on. It's a, it's a lot of observation and so um, I had a, a nearby neighbor who has a very, very large flock that I would uh, go and help out at occasionally. If he needed to be away during lambing, I would make a stop over there to see if any new lambs were born. And then I had close friends who, who used to live in the area. They've since moved away, but they were wonderful and kind mentors who um, I would help out on their farm. And then they were so good about me being able to to call and they'd come over at a moment's notice to help if I had something that I didn't think I could quite get through on my own. Do you have multiple varieties of sheeps? I have two different breeds. My primary uh, breed is the Coopworth uh, breed and that's that was developed in New Zealand in the 1950s by crossing Border Lester and Romney and uh, it's a sheep that was has always been uh, selected for production traits, which means it, that each time a, lambs are selected to be kept as part of the breeding stock, it's not their appearance or their parentage that is the decision maker for whether they'll stay in the flock. It's uh, quality things like the fleece quality, 
Um, did the did the mother have um, need any help with lambing? Trouble free, free lambing is an important thing. Was she a good mother? Did the lambs grow well? Um, those sort, sorts of qualities, and that appealed to me. I wanted um, I wanted a good, solid, sturdy breed to work with. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about the fiber qualities on that, but then the, to just to answer your question, the other breed that I have, I have one uh, Rommeldale CVM Weather, and that's a castrated male. Um, and I actually this summer am going to be getting two more uh, CVM Weathers. And that is a breed that is an American breed, and it's on the Livestock Conservancy, so it's part of the Save Them to Shave Them, or Shave Them to Save Them program. Um, it's a it's a breed that's classified as threatened by um, by the livestock conservancy. So it means that there's a small population, and that was developed in the ni- in about 1915 by crossing uh, Rom- Romney and Rambouillet. And that's interesting that I have two different breeds that are their fiber are so different, but they both contain some Romney heritage. And uh, initially the the Romney or the uh, the Rommeldale were all white, and they would cull any colored animals. And actually, over in New Zealand and Australia, that's the case for the Coopworth as well. But of course, colored breeds are um, are of interest to the um, to the spinning community. And so, when some lambs with natural color were born of the Rommeldale. Um, a breeder decided to start developing what is called the CVM, and that's California Variegated Mutant, and that was in the 1960s. And so now there's uh, there's that strain of the Rommeldale that's called the CVM, and so my my one weather that I have now is kind of a creamy white on most of his body, but he has dark legs and sort of a badger face is what they call it. His his face is darker colored. And um, the two new weathers that I'll be getting, one is sort of a chocolatey brown, and the other one is a lighter fawn color with sort of polka dots. And um, their Mm. fleece is, the CVM fleece is super dense, uh, three to six inch staple length, and uh, very very fine. Um, Wow. Yeah, it it has a beautiful crimp to it, really tight and bouncy. And uh, so it's perfect for uh, against the skin. I made a hat for my husband, and there's no need for any type of a you know fleece fleece uh, headband on it. It's it's perfectly comfortable against his forehead, and uh, and so I, I like that in contrast to the Coopworth then, which is still a really versatile fiber um, and it's nice for beginning spinners it's a it's a long wool and um, generally is super lustrous it's very very strong and sturdy and um, and I have made socks out of it I've made a sweater out of it uh, hats and and um, still find it to be really comfortable and great for many different things and both of those breeds, uh, the fiber dyes well and felts well, so I've made um, dryer balls and I make felted soap and things like that. Wow, that's that's so interesting. I have so many questions. <laughs> um, one thing that I was curious about is do so when it comes to 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 the colored fibers. Is that 
like predetermined or is it just what like do you figure it out after the sheep is born or do you kind of sort of know what color they have are certain varieties do they typically come in particular colors or uh well i i don't know so much about the cvm since i'm buying the the lambs um and they haven't ever done any breeding on them um, but with the Coopworth, um, it's it's sort of like Easter or Christmas when the lambs come out. I'm not sure what color they're going to be. And a lot of the um, the color characteristics are determined by what ram I use. I had a dark-colored ram that I used for a couple of years, and every single lamb was a black lamb from him. And then now the, the ram that I've, that I've used more recently... Um, the color, color of the U has determined it. So it, it, I have a friend who understands the genetics and, and exactly what's going on there a lot better than I do. But it, it means in that, in that dark-colored ram, uh, his genetics for color were, were stronger than the U's. And in, in this more recent ram, he's, he's a white-colored ram. Um, and if I, if he was bred to a white ewe, they had white lambs, and if it was a dark ewe, then they would have um, they would have black lambs. So it gets much more scientific than that, but, but I haven't made a, much of a study of that portion <laughs> of it. There's there's enough other things to focus on on the farm, and I just I value I value all the colors. You know, I, I really enjoy all the colors so much. Yeah, I mean it's it's really beautiful and um also so so sustainable to kind of just accept the fibers for what they are and what I love about wool fibers is that sometimes they you know each each fiber or when you're spinning yarn like the characteristics kind of live through in each little second I mean, um, each little section, you know, when you're weaving, sometimes it could be a little gradient or this and that. So I think that all of those qualities sort of just make hand spun and handmade goods all the more special, all the more unique. Yeah, they're not going to be uniform necessarily unless you really work to to blend it carefully. There's always going to be streaks of variation which just just add to the beauty of it add to the to the naturalness of it so you know one of the characteristics um a difference between the coopworth and the rommeldale is that um like a, if a coopworth is a is a black lamb each subsequent year their fleece gets lighter and lighter gray to a point and then it you know it continues to be gray and um and their um their fiber their staples tend to get slightly more coarse year by year as they get older, starting with the the softest um, when they're lambs. Whereas the CVM, uh, the fiber gets finer with age and the color gets darker with age. So that's sort of a fun contrast also. Mm. And do you um, hand spun all of your wool or do you use mills as well? I do use mills. Um, actually, when I have the sheep sheared in the springtime, I hire a shearer to come in, and then I um, carefully uh, skirt them, uh, meaning cleaning cleaning off the, the dirtier wool. I put coats on my sheep, and so the mill, um, the fiber that goes to the mill is the cleanest fiber that was underneath the coats, but I have started to save all of the fiber 
and I hang on to and sort of sort the rest of the fiber that I keep here. And so then I do some processing here, uh, which I can talk about later. Uh, but the stuff that I send to the mill is the absolute cleanest. And I've been sending wool to a mill called Blue Hill, Hills Fiber Mill in Bruce, Wisconsin, only about 60 miles away. I really like the fact that it's so close. Um, and just this last Friday, I took fiber for the first time down to Lafarge, Wisconsin, to Utopia Fiber Mill. And a capability that she has with her machines there is that she can process fibers up to 10 inches long, whereas the, um, the Blue Hills Fiber Mill is limited to seven and a quarter inches long as the longest. And some of my Coopworth are, are especially long, and so I had two fleeces that were um, seven and a half to eight inch long staple, and normally I would have those made into roving since I can't, uh, since the Blue Hills Fiber Mill can't accommodate that long a fiber. But I decided to take those down to Utopia Fiber Mill this year and, and um, have her make those into yarn for me. So I'm excited to have an opportunity to develop a relationship with an, another fiber mill in the area. And when the mills create the yarn, do you sell it to direct to consumer or do you um, sell to like yarn shops and things of that nature? Do you use them to make products and goods? I don't make, I don't knit anything myself out of the fiber. I sell it direct to consumers and I have it listed online and I also go to some fiber festivals and those sort of, sorts of things. Um, I did have a yarn shop in the area that I was taking a limited amount of fiber to. They're um, no longer open, um, but I'm, I'm open to new ideas. I'm continuing to try to find uh, new avenues for selling my yarn as well. Well, we'll definitely make sure to have links to the in the bio of this episode so that people can support your your yarn shop. Fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> so you also make soaps. Can you talk about how you're using your 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 sheep to make soap and what the process is of making that? Yeah, and I, I don't actually use any of the sheep tallow in the soap uh, because it tends to have a stronger smell than um, beef tallow. Uh, so, so as far as making the actual soap, um, I use beef tallow, coconut oil, and olive oil. And I've been making the soap since we first moved up here in 2000. And I, I do use um, some herbs that I grow um, as texture in the soaps. Um, and what, the way that I involve the sheep in the soap is that um, I'm making felted soaps. And I'm using... Uh, wool that's natural color and wool that's um, been been dyed um, to I color blend um, rollogs on my hand cards and then uh, wrap those around the soap and felt it. Wow, I've uh, can you explain that a little bit more? I've never heard of felted soap before. Oh, okay. So it's done in a wet wet felted process. I wrap the wool around the soaps, and then I wet the soaps down, and, and then just with my hands, I'm agitating the wool 
um, in order to, you know, just kind of rubbing on the soap bar in order to get the um, the wool to lock in and felt. It's, you know, similar to any other any other process of felting. The, the wool has a cuticle along the staple that's very grabby, and, and you know, almost everybody has experienced um, that chagrin when they pulled something out of the wash and realized that it was 100% wool because it shrunk on them. Here I'm, I'm using it intentionally uh, to get that wool to lock around the soap. And then it's nice because it becomes almost like a washcloth built in uh, on the soap and it um, is it you know it helps to to clean out. I have a friend who's a an avid gardener and she says it's the best thing for getting the getting the dirt out of her out of her fingers um, and so it clean it helps to clean it up. Oh, so it's kind of like a, a wool exfoliating sponge. Yeah, instead of a loofah, it's a it's a wool soap. Wow, that sounds awesome. I might have to try that. I love exfoliating. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I read about in your farm bio um, is that you are very, um, you have a lot of uh, sustainability built into your practice. And two of the things that I saw that I wanted to ask you about was your seven-year rotation and your management intensive grazing. Yeah, and so I guess I'll talk about the management intensive grazing first. And that's a system where a small area for just a very short period of time and then moving on and allowing that um, that forage, the grass and the other plants, a long opportunity to recover from from that. It it sort of mimics what the buffaloes might have done in the in the West in the past. Um, so in my case, I divide up my paddocks by using uh, electronet fencing, so fencing that I can move in and move out, and I divide um, the paddock into a small area um, that is just enough for my sheep to get a good meal for a day, typically during the during the um, height of the grazing season. I'm I'm looking for leaving them in one spot for a day. They graze that down to a fairly short level. I don't really want it to be uh, much shorter than three or four inches, but they're intensively grazing it. They they don't have an opportunity to be picky about what they're eating, so they're more thorough about it. Um, they're, they're cleaning it all up, and then they are moved to a new spot where they have the opportunity to start fresh with, with nice tall grass and eat it down to three or four inches again. And they won't come back to that spot that they had just been moved from for ideally at least 45 days. So that that grass and clover, et cetera, has a chance to, to get tall and re- completely recover. Um, they say that the amount, the height of the grass that you see above the soil is a fairly good representation of the amount of root mass and depth that you have below the soil. So like you can you can imagine on a golf course where they're keeping that really short, you know, an inch or less, that's really all the root that they probably have underneath the soil as well. And if my grass is being allowed to get 12 inches tall, it's allowed the opportunity to develop that much root mass underneath the ground. And so it... It helps with soil health. It helps with the resiliency of that pasture because then the roots are digging deeper to 
get to water if they need to, if we're going through a, a sort, any sort of a drought. Um, but also they're reaching deeper to get to additional minerals, and they're carrying those minerals up into the grass blades where the you know, next time the sheep come through, they have, have the opportunity to harvest grass that's even more nutritious for them. Um, and so they, they just are moving across my pasture in a, in a you know, organized fashion from, from one section to another. And they like it. You know, when I, when I show up to set up the fences, they start bellering at me because the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Um, and, and it's very easy, uh, very easy to just open up the fence and say, come on girls. And they head on to the, to the next area and start munching on that next bit of grass. So that's sort of a short, short representation of what management intensive grazing means. And it falls into the realm of regenerative agriculture, which is really attempting to leave the soil and the land in a better fashion than I, than I found it, you know, to continually improve the soil health and the variety of forage that's in the pasture um, and the, its resiliency during climate um, issues and weather changes and, um, and continually working to improve the amount of nutrients that it provides to the sheep. And another thing that happens with management-intensive grazing is that the, instead of collecting the waste from the sheep, the manure, in one spot and then taking a machine and spreading it across the land, the sheep are doing that automatically. It's, it's being laid down exactly where it needs to be. And also with that type of a system of management intensive grazing, um, the opportunity for parasites to be a problem are somewhat limited. I mean, it's still something that needs to be monitored, but hopefully that manure that's being dropped and that they're leaving behind, the worms that are in that um, will hopefully hatch and live out their life, life cycle and um, be not be viable the next time the the sheep come back through there's you know there's a lot of different variables involved in in whether that's successful or not but it it does help to reduce the the uh, impact of of the parasites on the sheep as well interesting very interesting um, and can you talk about your seven-year rotation? Sure, and that has more to do with the garden and the crops that I'm growing in there. I have um, a series of, I guess, I guess there's seven or eight, seven beds um, that I'm planting in. Um, they're about 20 feet square each, and I try to never have a particular plant come back to. The, if I let's say I plant garlic and it's in the southeast bed in the garden right now and next year it'll be in the southwest bed and it won't come back and be planted in that south southeast bed um, for for seven years and, and um, that allows the 
each each of the different kind of plants that I grow have different demands and and are and have a different impact on the soil and take up different nutrients have um, different needs for the amount of fertility etc and then also have different pests that are bothering them and so this way um, it's it's it allows each of those things to have an opportunity to recover from that particular plant and uh, so you know things with legumes um, provide nutrients to the soil they help fix nitrogen and so when they come through their rotation in that area they they're adding a a serving of of, uh, nitrogen to that particular bed Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah (laughs) wow that sounds great it sounds like you have like a whole a really really great like foundation that you're working with as far as like keeping your farm sustainable can you talk about maybe some of the challenges you may have faced to maybe start out sustainably or to continue to uphold, you know, the sustainable structure that you've in place? Yeah, one thing that was really kind of interesting is that the about the first seven or eight years that we lived here, we were in a semi-drought. We didn't know that at the time. We got used to managing the land in a particular way. Uh, that was fairly dry and then after that the skies opened up and so ever since then we've had wetter years and uh, and we have fairly heavy clay soil which can be really great because it has lots of nutrients in it and lots of minerals in it and is um, good for growing things in but none of that is is uh, available to plants if they're completely saturated um, and so, so we've had to uh, develop systems of uh, shaping the beds so that they're raised, so that they're, the pathways are holding the water, and the water is shedding off of the center of the beds. And and with the sheep, it, it's been an issue as well. I have to be careful when we're going to have a big rain event that I've got the sheep in an area where they're going to be above water. Um, and so, so that's been a particular challenge, and it's hard to know from one year to the next whether it's going to be a wet year or not, and which pastures we're going to use, and and how the plants are going to do in the garden, and that sort of thing. And one change that I'm making right now, I've been raising chickens for years. We we raise broiler chickens some of the time, but we've had a laying flock all of the time, and I've decided to transition over to ducks. Because they're waterfowl and um, they'll enjoy <laughs> when parts of the land are underwater, and I'm hoping that they'll also be able to take care of some of the pests that uh, you know the, that lower parts of the pastures uh, have on them. We've got a type of snail that is a um, an intermediate host for liver flukes, which um, are an issue for sheep on many farms. Um, and have have definitely been something that I've struggled with, and I'm hoping that the the ducklings, uh, when they've grown up, are going to be able to help have a positive impact on on the uh, health of the sheep by helping to take care of uh, some of those snails. And then I guess another another challenge with uh, a farm being sustainable is that uh, it's often pretty labor intensive. Our farm is small. Uh, we've got about six and a half acres of pasture, and we do have a tractor that we use for for some things, but a lot of things are done by hand. And so, 
since I'm the primary farmer, my husband helps out with chores when I, I leave and, and has certain aspects of the, of the farm that he helps to take care of. But for the most part, it's, it's my decision making and, um, and my labor. And so, um, a sustainable a farm that has a strong sustainability focus i think has has a higher level of uh, labor intensity and so i am always um juggling you know what things should i keep on doing diversity is good but there's a limit to to how much diversity one individual winds up being a challenge making the decisions and trying to cut back to uh to keep my labor output at a sustainable level as well mm. And what is your surrounding community like in in Wisconsin? You're in northern Wisconsin, right? Right, north central Wisconsin, and it's extremely rural. Um, we're sort of on the edge of the forested part of Wisconsin. The next county south of us is is more cultivated and more larger farms. Ours is small farms and a, a lot of logging industry and paper, paper making, uh, machinery production and those types of things. Um, it's a county that is, um, steadily losing population. When we moved here in 2000, there were over 15,000 people. And as of the last estimate, there were 13,400 people. So it's dropping about 13 people per square mile. So and uh, and it's also fairly limited in racial diversity. Uh, it's pretty much white um, in this county, and they're not very wealthy. Uh, fairly limited uh, disposable income. So uh, you know, I've found that uh, you know, carefully raising my products in a sustainable way, um, and with uh, with being such small scale, the um, prices that I need to charge in order to make it economically sustainable for me is difficult for many of my neighbors um, to consider being my customers. So I need to look outside of, of my region for my customer base to, to some extent. Um, and, um, Yeah, so I think that's the end of that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. It's definitely a challenge um, uh, to be an organic, sustainable farmer and to also create things and to create, you know, reasonable price points that also are sustainable for you as well as for other people. You know, we kind of live within this financial system that um, has sort of put us in a a bind. It, you know, if if I can say, where we have kind of gotten accustomed to certain prices of things, and because of that, um, it's it's kind of made it very difficult to create and to bring things to market that are true to cost. So I completely understand where you're coming from. And it's especially um, especially difficult for smaller farmers, small scale, small scale farmers. Yeah, we don't have you that efficiency that of, are... of scale. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it makes a huge difference, a huge difference. Yeah, but I do have a fiber community. Um, you know, it's a, it's relatively small, and people have to travel a good distance to come. But that's 
that's encouraging and it's nice to have that community of people who are spinning and knitting and and uh, raising raising sheep or other fiber as well and um, just a couple years ago I became aware of the fiber shed which was started in California and uh, which has has um, begun to develop affiliates around the world and um, a couple of years ago the Three Rivers Fiber Shed was um, started as an affiliate in many, with its with the center of its radius at Minneapolis it goes out 175 miles so I fall within the radius of the Three Rivers Fiber Shed and that's been a fantastic group for me to be a part of I, it's getting started it's young um, but I see so much wonderful potential um, a year and a half ago, they had a couple of producer workshops, and I loved being able to sit down with other people who were doing exactly the same thing that I'm doing. I've always been a big uh, consumer of extension service uh, for knowledge, but that's always been sort of um, focused on farmers of all different types, and so I haven't been able to glean as much that's specifically about raising quality fiber and finding market uh, for fiber and those sorts of things. And so sitting down with this group of producers through the Three Rivers Fiber Shed meant that we were having so many similar uh, struggles and successes around quality fiber and getting it to market, and that's that's been exciting. And so I've gotten more and more involved in that. And they're... Um, the constraints that they place are that it's local fiber, local labor, and local dye, which may be a difficult transition for uh, some people, but I find it exciting. It fits with my sustainability ethic, and it'll, it uh, has spurred me to get more involved in natural dyes. So I, last summer I raised some indigo and uh, started saving the flowers from the marigolds and the calendula and the things like that that I had already been raising. And I'm starting to focus on that. And then as far as the local labor and the local fiber, that I was already doing um, using local mills and uh, raising the sheep myself. So the the hardest part for me has been um, getting into the natural dyes, but that's something that I've been wanting to do anyway. And so little by little, as my time allows, I've been um, turning wool into beautiful colors right here on the farm and having a good time with it and, and learning a ton. Yeah, it sounds like so much fun. Um, are you working on any Definitely other is. projects or do you have future prospects that you would like to talk about? Um, I, I am dabbling this spring with uh, suent fermentation, washing of wool. Um, that's, <laughs> that's been sort of interesting. All of the YouTube videos I watched to sort of get prepared by, for that made it sound like it was so horribly stinky and it and it most definitely is it's uh, you know sort of like <laughs> like like fermentation is you know but um but i guess there's a there's a lot of smells on a farm so it doesn't seem as bad to me as as what uh, some of the youtube videos seem to indicate but so it's a fermentation process where you take a particularly dirty fleece 
and you put it into rainwater for seven to ten days and allow it that that becomes your starter just like a, um, a starter for um, for bread uh, I can't think of what that's called right now mm. sourdough just like a starter like, well, a like sourdough. A or like yeah like kombucha exactly uh, but so you're putting the wool in there in the rainwater and getting it started and it's not cleaning up the um the vegetable matter or and it's really not taking away very much of the lanolin but it's taking care of all of the other dirtiness so like i mentioned earlier i i carefully skirt my fleeces and the cleanest stuff is what goes to the mill and so then what stays with me for for me to play with when i'm dying and things like that is um is what i'm now um trying uh, out suent uh, fermentation washing with and um, so far I've just I've made some dryer balls from um, what I've washed that way and um, thought it was pretty successful and I love the fact that it cuts down on the amount of water that I need to wash my wool and um, and also I love to be able to think well I'm washing wool right now it's sitting there in the suet vat um, it feels sort of like it's cutting down on some of the labor as well and other projects, the um, Three Rivers Fiber Shed is having a project called One Year, One Outfit um, this year. And I'm participating in that by, uh, I'm going to make a ruana. Um, so I've uh, washed the wool and carded it. I have a whole bunch of bats and I've begun to spin that into a three-ply yarn, uh, which I will knit into a ruana. And... And the Fiber Shed is certainly interested in having other people from this region be involved in that One Year One Outfit um, project. And so it's, again, using local labor, local dye, and local fiber, and individuals can um, create something from scratch or uh, buy yarn and knit something. And all of those things would would fit into uh, making making their outfit, and they'll have a culmination in December where there will be sort of a fashion show to show off the items that people have created. So where can people go on social media and the internet to follow your work and see all your updates? I do have a website. It's a WordPress website, autumnlarchfarm.wordpress.com. Um, and and I also have uh, an, inter- uh, an Instagram feed and that's at Autumn Larch Farm LLC and I'm fairly active about posting on the Instagram feed um, and the link to that also shows up on the WordPress blog. Great well it's been awesome having you on the podcast and before you go I have one question to ask you and this is a question that we ask everyone that comes on And that is, do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts? Sure. So I I would say collaborate and share knowledge uh, generously with your fellow fiber enthusiasts. Um, We don't need to even think about the word competition in this world. I think it's such a kind and... uh, good-hearted group um, that even if we're doing exactly the same thing, we're doing it in a slightly different way and we can gain so much by 
by just collaborating and working together and sharing ideas. And then to also experiment, try out new fibers, try them out in, in unexpected ways, and, and just have fun with fiber. It's such a great thing. Amazing. Thank you so much. You are welcome, LaShawn. Happy to do it. That's a wrap. I really enjoyed speaking with Jane, and I hope you all enjoyed hearing her story as well. If you are interested in finding out ways to support Jane's farm or to visit her shop, you can find links to her website at www.justyarn.com episode 68. Next week on the podcast, Sarah is talking to Felicia Lowe Wong the founder of Sweet Georgia Yarn Company and the Sweet Georgia Podcast. So stay tuned for that episode. And until next time, happy weaving.